Live from New York City, it's the Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us. I'd like to welcome all the people around the United States listening on different stations, as well as the 166 different countries that people are tuned into this program from. Today, no guest, some original commentaries, plus commentaries from Professor Henry Giroux, Truthout, Data Storms. When the government outsources to private companies, we think that's a good thing because we don't oppose it. Big mistake. Because inequality gets worse. What are the actual costs? So when they say, we're going to give you some money, and which you're going to use immediately, but then you're going to give us your parking meters, your toll booths, your roads, your water system. What's the payback? It's bad. Also today, I'm going to go into teenagers in U.S. prisons. I think it's time for us to stop this savagery and neglect. The endearing myths of Hiroshima, the atrocities and war of, on investigative journalism, Who Owns the Federal Reserve by Dr. Ellen Brown, the Fed is privately owned, its shareholders, private banks, but there's a lot more, and I'll be challenging the idea that we should even have a Federal Reserve, or that we should be giving them the opportunity to spend 10 $20 trillion to give to banks because they actually benefit from that. You were told, no, they don't make a profit. Yes, they do. And we'll explore it. In health and nutrition today, CAT scans, they're being promoted for children. A lot of them. Well, there was someone who took the time to look at 180,000 young patients' records of CAT scans. The results are frightening. Ginseng is great for one condition above all else. Astragalus, which is an herb, is an unsung cancer fighter. And also we're going to take a look at blueberries, what they do inside of our system that is really good for us. And a new cancer treatment research out of China shows that what is called Thunder God Vine is stunning Western researchers with its capacity to intervene and stop cancer in its tracks in as little as 40 days. More on that. You, we have a lot to share, and I will be taking your calls in a little bit on the program, and that number to call in on is 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. Also want to Welcome all the people who listen over the telephone. More and more people are listening over the phone because you might turn on the radio one day and I'm not on. In which case you say, where's Gary? Well, all you have to do is go to the internet, go to ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com or GaryAndAll.com and you can hear me live. Or you can call these two numbers, 401 347 347-0456. That should be busy. 
7231-712-432-7231. And we want to thank the people who've listened in 11 million minutes. CAT scans. I'm opposed to them unless it's an absolutely life-and-death situation. But like all high technology, once it gets made, it's going to get used. And then all the concern about its safety becomes a secondary issue. Well, the BBC News did an investigation, which was published in the Lancet. It was done through Newcastle University. What we know is this. When they examined the medical records of almost 180,000 young patients, they said that it could triple brain cancer risk in children. That's triple it. And during the CAT scan, which stands for computerized tomography, an X-ray tube rotates around the patient's body to produce detailed images of internal organs and other body parts. In the first long-term study of its kind, the researchers looked at the reports of patients aged under 21 who had CAT scans at various hospitals between 1985-2002. Remember, cancer takes a while to develop, especially brain cancer. And brain cancer and leukemia are two rare diseases. The important thing is that parents can be reassured that if a doctor suggests a child should have a CAT scan, the radiation, the cancer risk, have been taken into account. But they haven't. Quote from Professor Alan Kraft, there is significant increases in cancer. So, I do not believe that the benefits outweigh the risks. I believe that we should not be doing this unless it's absolutely, positively a life and death matter. I remember doing a debate many years ago, the beginning of my career on ginseng. I knew that the person advocating against me was associated with the pharmaceutical industry. So I simply went to the medical literature, and I found very few studies in the United States on no-quality studies on ginseng. So then I looked at the Chinese literature and the Japanese literature, and I only referenced that which had been published in their best peer-reviewed literature. I found 5,000 studies, and then I took the abstracts and I prepared my report. So when he said that there's really no benefit to ginseng, there's no science behind it, I said, there's 5,000 studies behind it. End of argument. And they're positive. Unfortunately, in the United States, we generally don't use that which has been used in other countries and other cultures. We could benefit from that, as we've seen from the benefits of the Mediterranean diet. This is from the Mayo Clinic. This was published in the peer-reviewed journal of the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And here's what it says. High doses, quote, of the herbal ginseng Panax over two months reduce cancer-related fatigue in patients more effectively than a placebo. So, this was done in breast cancer patients. And as we know, the findings um, are that when you have breast cancer and you're being treated, you stay in almost a perpetual state of fatigue because your body's immune system is, is really being affected. So 2,000 milligrams of ginseng administered in capsules contained pure American ginseng, which is great. Quote, 
Off-the-shelf ginseng is sometimes processed using ethanol, which can give it, it estrogen-like properties that may be harmful. And uh, so get just pure, unadulterated ginseng. It helped overcome that worn-out, fatigue, sluggish, run-down, and tired feeling. So that's important. So here's the question. Since ginseng is an adaptogenic herb, it adapts to what your body needs, why not just use ginseng if you're fatigued, if you've overworked, overexercised? You don't have to wait till you have cancer to benefit from it. From Science Daily, an article in the current American Journal of Medicine, Healthy Habits Can Prevent Disease. Five separate new studies provide evidence to support simple steps that we can take to prevent illness and improve our overall health. And that's important, including uh, helping us overcome cardiovascular conditions or preventing them. It can also help with prevent colorectal cancer. So more fiber, more fruits, more vegetables, more exercise. And that's what they were looking at. Of course, not smoking is also up there high and not drinking as well. But you've already known that because you have been living a healthier life for a long time. Also, a lot of people don't eat raisins. We should. Because if you eat a small amount of raisins, they're actually extremely nourishing. Now, you don't want to eat a lot of them because they do have natural amounts of fructose. But if you eat a small amount, like a half a handful, this study that was published in the Canadian Nutrition Society Journal shows that it can help control hunger, promote satiety in children. So that's good. So remember, what is it? What is a raisin? It's a dried grape. And that means the grape skin, the grape seed, proanthocytidins, resveratrol, are in raisins. Astragalus should be considered an important part of your overall cancer-fighting program. According to 4,000 years of history of Chinese medicine, it is one of the best adaptogenic, non-toxic herbs and plant extracts that can help your body deal with stress, which is important. It helps you if you're adrenally shot. If you've overstressed and your adrenals are shot, then you're going to be fatigued. It can help you with digestion, metabolism, increases stamina, I suggest it for all the people I counsel at AIDS to finding illnesses and even has anti-tumor effects. It can actually increase the efficacy of chemotherapy. Now, astragalus is native to China and they've done a lot of research in China on it. And it, it actually has a sweet taste to it. It contains flavonoids, amino acids, and beta-sidesterol, saponins, and oil. It's very beneficial. It can help with Epstein-Barr virus, candida. And it protects against oxidative damage by initiating mitochondrial function without increasing the mitochondrial oxygen consumption. And in the liver, astragalus also is very good for helping repair from chronic viral hepatitis, turning off inflammation. So, on all levels, 
astragalus, A-S-T-R-A-G-A-L-U-S. Very beneficial, and especially when seasons change or you're doing some traveling or you're not getting enough sleep at night and you feel your immune system taking a hit, that's when you want to make sure you have it. Also, optimal vitamin D levels lower heart disease uh, death. This is a really good study. Here's what it says. Uh, quote, so-called all-cause mortality, that's death, was reduced by 75% in people with optimal vitamin D levels. So you want to make sure you get your vitamin D. This was published in Diabetes Care. Quote, we hope these findings will spur interventional randomized controlled trials to confirm the effects of vitamin D on mortality and, if possible, help establish recommendations for supplementation in these subjects. This was from the University of Birmingham in England. Well, there's thousands upon thousands of studies on vitamin D and especially the D3 and the DH factor. <clears throat> we will suggest between 1,000 and 3,000 units a day. That would be the right risk. So less chance of dying from all causes. Now, one of nature's most perfect foods is the blueberry. And according to Margie King, writing an article in Green Med Info, it has been associated to help against cancer as well. This is University of Bur Alabama at, at Birmingham, studied the link between disease and nutrition, believing that eating just one cup of blueberries every day prevents cell damage linked to cancer. Now, I know that there's at least a thousand studies on blueberries. We know that blueberries are important because they're rich in antioxidants and they also have flavonoids. And the flavonoid is what helps protect the cell from DNA damage. We know that antioxidants help protect the cell from free radicals. A free radical is an atom that contains an odd number of electrons. It's highly unstable. And free radicals you get when you smoke, when you drink, when you're around polluted air, when you eat uh, fried foods. So anything that can flood the body with antioxidants is good. And blueberries are good in one particular type of flavonoid called anthocyanins. Antho, A-N-T-H-O, psi, C-Y, anins, A-N-I-N-S. They're water-soluble pigments. So when you go to the farmer's market or health food store or the food co-op, look for your reds, your violets, your blues, your orange, because they're rich in this. And apples and blueberries both get their beautiful colors from anthocyanins. So you want to be able to get your blueberries. You can get them fresh as concentrates, as powder, however you get them. Get them so there's no high fructose corn syrup. <clears throat> and they're low in calories too. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've also seen where blueberries can help with aging skin, an aging brain, Alzheimer's, brain inflammation, breast cancer, uh, bone metastasis, C-reactive protein, a chemically induced liver damage, cholesterol, colorectal cancer, cryptosporidias, diabetes, fatty liver, giardias. Helps with all these. So it's just one perfect fruit.
I'm Gary Knoll. That's the latest on health and nutrition. I'm going to take a break, and we're now going to open our lines up for you to be able to call in. The number is 888-874-4888. 888-874-4888. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. Hey, hey, hey. What's up, man? Brother, what's up? This is a big party, man. in just a moment. But first, I'm sure many of you have seen the airwaves from NPR to Fox to the major networks to the internet where people are sharing the view of those people that act as a spokesperson for responsible uh, journalism and government policymaking like Lindsey Graham. We see him all the time, even today. And Hillary Clinton, where she wanted to do more to help uh, the uh, insurgents in Syria. I didn't see anyone taking a look at history to see that she was been wrong on every single major policy. She supported the Patriot Act. She supported the National Defense Authorization Act. She supported the um, war in Iraq. She supported the continuation of Afghanistan. She has not challenged the military-industrial budget, but also... Did we forget, as a society, that we and she, under her watch, felt that we needed to go into Libya? We didn't have to. We were lied to. One more provocation. We armed the so-called moderate insurgents. Those moderate insurgents used the money, the training from Saudi Arabia, from the United States, from France, to go into Syria. From Syria, we gave them more money, and now they went from Syria into Iraq. That's who we're fighting today. They take no responsibility for that. It's as if we have, in our society at this time, a complete disconnect from history. The current mainstream debate regarding the crisis in Iraq and Syria offers a near-perfect example of both the death of historical memory and the collapse of critical thinking in the United States. It also signifies the emergence of a profoundly anti-democratic culture 
of manufactured ignorance and social indifference. Surely historical memory is under assault when the dominant media air people such as the incessant warmongers, Senator John McCain, Lindsey Graham, retro pundits like Billy Crystal and Douglas Fife, Condoleezza Rice, Paul Wolfowitz. Not only have they all been wrong and hence should have no credibility, but they then turn around and they work to legitimate the unremitting web of lies and deceit that pr provided cover for the disastrous U.S. invasion of Iraq under the Bush-Cheney administration and of also in Libya. And I might mention their darling prince and princesses on the left, the millionaire class, who are the 1%, they also advocated incursions into Libya and Syria. I see no one on the left challenging them for having been so rampantly wrong. History repeats itself in the recent resurgence of calls for U.S. military interventions in Syria and Iraq. Well, we're giving cover in drones, but we're not pulling back to look at the total picture. Such repetitions of history undoubtedly shift from tragedy to farce as former Vice President Dick Cheney once again becomes a leading pundit calling for military solutions to the current crisis in the Middle East. In spite of his established reputation for hypocrisy, lies, corporate cronyism, defending torture, and abysmal policymaker under the Bush administration. The resurrection of Dick Cheney, the Darth Vader of the 21st century, as a legitimate source on the current crisis in Syria and Iraq is a truly monumental display of historical amnesia and moral dissipation. As Tom Hartman observes, Cheney bears a large responsibility for the Iraq War, which, quote, was the single biggest foreign policy disaster in recent or maybe even all of American history. It cost the country around $4 trillion, killing hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians, left 4,500 Americans dead, and turned what was once one of the more developed countries in the Arab world into a slaughterhouse. What room is there for historical memory in an age when the twin presiding deities are irony and violence? Professor Henry Giroux is succinct on this and feels that missing from the commentaries by the mainstream media regarding the current situation in Iraq is any historical context that would offer critical account of the disorder plaguing the Middle East. A resurrection, resurrection of historical memory in this moment could provide important lessons regarding the present crisis. What is clear in this case is that a widespread avoidance of the past has become not only a sign of the appalling lack of historical knowledge in contemporary American culture, but a deliberate political weapon used by the powerful to keep people passive and blind to the truth. And of course, there are many factors currently contributing to this production of ignorance and the lobotomization of individual and collective agency. Such factors extend from the idiocy of celebrity and the popular culture and the dumbing down of American schools to the transformation of the mainstream media into a deadly mix of propaganda, violence, and entertainment. The latter is particularly crucial as the collapse of journalistic standards that could inform the onslaught of information finds its counterpart in an unrelenting rise of political and civil illiteracy.
the knowledge and the value deficits that produce such detrimental forms of ignorance not only crush the imagination, critical modes of social interaction and political dissent, but also destroy those public spheres and spaces that promote thoughtfulness, thinking, critical dialogue, and serve as guardians of truth as facts. The blight of rampant consumerism, unregulated finance capital, and weakened communal bonds is directly related to the culture's production of autonomized, isolated, utterly privatized individuals who have lost sight of the fact that what was it that someone said humanity is never acquired in solitude? This retreat into private silos has resulted in the inability of individuals to connect their personal suffering with larger public issues, thus detached from any concept of the common good or viable vestige of the public realm. They are left to face alone a world of increasing precarity and uncertainty in which it becomes difficult to imagine anything other than how to survive. Under such circumstances, there's little room for thinking critically and acting collectively in ways that are imaginative and courageous. Surely the celebration and widespread prevalence of ignorance in American culture does more than merely testify to how stupid we become. It also indicates all of our weaknesses and our fears, as if there is an unbearable pain of seeing something for what it is. Yet what is often missed in analysis of political and civic illiteracy as the new normal is the degree to which these new forms of illiteracy not only result in an unconscious flight from politics, but also produce a moral coma that supports modern systems of terror and authoritarianism. Civic illiteracy is about more than the glorification and manufacture of ignorance. On an individual scale, it is producing a nationwide crisis of agency, memory, and thinking itself. How else to explain, for instance, a major national newspaper, its willingness to provide a platform for views that express an unchecked hatred of women? I'm talking about the Washington Post, published George Will's column, in which he states that being a rape victim is now, quote, a coveted status that confers privileges. Will goes on to say that accusations of rape and sexual violence are not only overblown, but that many women who claim that they were raped are delusional. Really? There is a particular type of aggressive ignorance here that constitutes a symbolic assault on women while obscuring the underlying conditions that legitimate sexual violence in the United States. Will expresses more concern over what he calls the pesky arithmetic used to determine the percentage of women actually raped on campuses than the ever-increasing incidence of sexual assault on women in colleges and the military. Just last year, a friend of mine invited me to a screening, in the, and I was happy to go. It was a documentary. It was about sexual violence in the military. There were only 17 of us in the theater, and the director was there, the producer was there, and it showed how impossible it is to get a conviction against someone when the very process in the military is, what if your boss, what if the general or the commander, someone directly in control of you is the person that you have to go to to complain about being sexually assaulted? 
That's the catch-22. The military has done diddly squat about this. But this is a minor issue in the American media. It sure isn't to the people who've been sexually assaulted. The clueless George Will, evidently angry about the growing number of women who are reporting the violence waged against them, draws on the persuasive utility of mathematical data as a way to bolster a shockingly misogynist argument and flee from any sense of social moral responsibility. And while such expressions of resentment make Will appear as as a privileged white man who is truly delusional, he is a typical product of an expanding mass of pundits who live in a historical void and for whom emotion overtakes reason. Increasingly, it appears the American media no longer requires that words bear any relationship to truth or that a larger purpose other than peddling rigid, archaic ideologies designed to shock and stupefy audiences. Clearly, the attack on reason, evidence, science, and critical thought has reached perilous proportions in the United States. In conclusion, a number of political, economic, social, and technological forces now work to distort reality and keep people passive, unthinking, unable to act in any critically engaged manner. Politicians, pundits both right and left, they hold the public almost in an excruciating embrace to support creationism, capital punishment, torture, and the denial of human-engineered climate change, any one of which not only defies human reason but stands in stark opposition to the evidence-based scientific arguments. And I blame the left and the Nation magazine and all the programs on MSNBC, and for that matter, 90% of the programs on Pacifica, because when I presented information to them to show them irrefutable proof that the war on AIDS has been misdirected by small groups of gay activists, and people by the thousands receiving hundreds of billions of dollars collectively, more than on heart disease and cancer combined, because they game the system. They will not hear the argument. When we talk about the lack of real science in in vaccinations, they refuse to even listen. When we talk about the drugging of our children, they turn their back. When we talk about the homeless and the defeated souls of the Gulf War vets and the Iraqi vets with post-traumatic stress disorder and Gulf War syndrome. Not one did a program in 21 years of asking and sending them over three multi-award winning documentaries and 20 different articles. So at least they say that they protect the public. They're true liberals. They are not. They're faux everything. They need a course in literacy intellectual honesty, and real science-based methodological considerations. But that's where we're at. So, in these circumstances today, literacy disappears not just as the practice of, of learning skills, but also as the foundation for taking informed action. Back in a moment with your calls. Please stay with us.
Now, I want to go, I'm going to take some more calls here in a moment at 888-874-4888. But I've heard so many people say that America um, needs to be policing the world to prevent weapons of mass destruction. And my argument, like John LaForge from Consortium News, is that we are the only nation that's actually used weapons of mass destruction where we didn't have to. And this may be a shock to Sean Hannity and some of his guests who consider themselves expert, but the U.S. atomic destruction of 140,000 people at Hiroshima and 70,000 at Nagasaki was never necessary. Why? Because Japan had already been smashed. There was no land invasion needed, and Japan was actually suing for peace. The official myth that bombs saved lives by hurrying Japan's surrender is simply it is completely inaccurate. And McNamara gave us that insight from his do, uh, from the documentary he was in about him, The Fog of War, which was an Academy Award-winning documentary, and Earl Morris did it, and a very good one. So the long-standing fiction has been destroyed by the historical record kept in U.S., Soviet, Japanese, and British archives. Now it's been declassified and detailed by war Ward Wilson in his book, Five Myths About Nuclear Weapons. And Greg Mitchell's atomic cover-up also helps explain the durability of the Save Lives ruse. Wartime and occupation censors seized all films and still photos of the two atomic sites, and the United States government kept them hidden for decades. Even in 1968, newsreel footage from Hiroshima held in the National Archives was stamped secret, not to be released without approval of the Department of Defense. Photos of uh, automatized cities did not reach the public, merely shown burned buildings or mushroom clouds, rarely human victims. In Hiroshima in America, 50 years of denial, Robert Lifton and Mitchell note that General Leslie Groves, head of the Manhattan Project, left nothing to chance. Even before Hiroshima, he prohibited U.S. commanders from commenting on the atomic attacks without clearance from the War Department. He didn't want MacArthur and others saying that the war could have been won without the bomb. In fact, MacArthur did not believe the bomb was needed to end the war, but he too established a censorship program as commander of the U.S. occupation of Japan. He banned reporters from visiting Hiroshima or Nagasaki. He expelled reporters who defied the ban and later said that those who complained that censorship exists in Japan were engaged in a malicious false propaganda campaign that most people in the United States still believe that that we dropping the bombs save lives. That's a rationale that has simply been in existence for decades because of the censorship and the myth-making begun by Harry Truman, one of the worst presidents in American history. Really diabolical little pimp for major interest. In fact, in August 6, 1945, quote, 16 hours ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima, an important Japanese army base, that was because we wished this first attack to avoid, insofar as possible, the killing of civilians, end quote. That's a pathological liar. Well, then again, we've had all these other presidents who've engaged in lies. In fact, the city have 350,000, had practically no military value at all, and the target was the city not the base three kilometers away. Taking President Truman at his word, the 140,000 civilians killed at Hiroshima 
are the minimum to be expected when exploding a small nuclear weapon on a military base. Today's small cruise missile warheads, three quarters, which are 12 times the power of Truman's A-bomb, could kill 1.68 million each. So official censorship of what the two bombs did to people and the reasons for it have been so successful that 25 years of debunking hasn't managed to generally topple the official narrative. In 1989, historian Carl Alperwitz reported, quote, American leaders knew well in advance the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was not required to bring about Japan's surrender. Now, he wrote an 847-page book called The Decision to Use the Atomic Bomb by Random House, uh, published by Random House. Quote, I think it can be proven that the bomb was not only unnecessary, but known in advance not to be necessary. The popular myth didn't just happen. It was created. Kept hidden for decades was the 1946 U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey conclusion that Japan almost certainly would have surrendered in 1945 without the atomic bombs, without a Soviet invasion, and without a U.S. invasion. Not long after VJ Day in 1945, Brigadier General Bonnie Feller wrote, quote, Neither the atomic bombing nor the entry of the Soviet Union into the war forced Japan's unconditional surrender. It was defeated before either of these events took place. End quote. President Dwight Eisenhower, a five-star general and the supreme Allied commander in Europe, said in his memoirs he believed, quote, that Japan was already defeated and that dropping the bomb was completely unnecessary, end quote. And Admiral William Leahy, the wartime chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs, wrote in 1950, quote, it is my opinion that the use of these barbarous weapons at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was of no material success in our war against Japan. The Japanese were already defeated and ready to surrender, end quote. So, we have been living with censorship. We have been living with lies. Admiral Lee's 1950 myth-busting and censor-busting about the bomb could be the epitaph for the nuclear age. Quote, I was not taught to make war in that fashion, he said of Hiroshima's incineration, and wars cannot be won by destroying women and children. Well, that brings me so virtually the entire crew over to fascist, I mean, excuse me, Fox Network have been doing nothing but acting as warmongering mouthpieces. Don't you have any shame? Do you have no sense of scholarship at all? Is there no one there who's willing to look at history and tell the truth? We've known for decades the danger of depleted uranium, and that we used it in Kosovo, Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Herzegovina. We used it in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and of course, in Libya, knowing full well that it will still be radioactive two billion years from now. We've used so many weapons of mass destruction, and we take no responsibility for any of it. Let's say hello to Luann Panessi. Hi, Luann. Hello, Gary. Um, I have to tell you, I'm doing a lot of interviewing of your audience for our new health support group, and it is exciting. This is shaping up to be a great group for your people who want to lose weight, lower their cholesterol, manage their blood pressure. Uh, it's going to be a great group. And I wanted to reach out to anybody in the audience if they're interested in coming on board, um, I'm going to be interviewing people. 
and it takes place on Tuesday evenings. It's going to be a three-month health support group. And if you want more information, I'm going to invite you to give me a call. My number here is 631-504-6198. That's 631-504-6198. Let me put this in perspective. Over the last 30 years, I've conducted about 40, more or less, uh, studies using people from this audience. Weight control studies, a brain um, study where we help people literally save their lives. And they're alive and well today and improved or completely reversing conditions. Kenny multiple sclerosis, for example. And by doing these studies with enough people and doing them under strict scientific conditions, medically monitored, but though no medicine used, and still continuing under person's individual physician, we advocate nutrition and lifestyle and behavior modification only. But with protocols and support, that has made an enormous difference. So now it is helping people who, with the following conditions, if people are overweight, if people are diabetic, if they have high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, those four. We'll be measuring these. You'll be keeping a diary. We'll be filming the first day. We'll be filming the last day. I'll be there every week. We'll be meeting once a week for about three hours for three months. It is a three-month study group. And uh, so I believe that we can improve health and save lives. That's why we do it. In fact, this fall, I'll be doing a presentation before a large group of scientists, thousands of them, presenting the results of our last health support uh, because it, it, they saw the study, they saw the results, and they thought it would be important for these thousands of scientists to take a look at this, hear this. So that's what our goal is, to help set some standards, to do it in a way that can be reproducible by other people, and to publish in a peer-reviewed journal, and ultimately to get people's lives saved. So if you want to be a part of it, then uh, you can call Luann. Luann, give that number again. Surely. It's 631-504-6198. It's 631-504-6198. Thank you. And talking about a loss of memory, I still have people I listen to just to see them justifying what we're doing in Iraq, Afghanistan, or other places by saying, well, you know, if only we'd have stayed in Vietnam. We were in Vietnam 20 years, not 10 years, not 7 years, not 12 years. Those are the years that we were there when the French were there. We gave $3 billion to the French. We supported the French. So we were really there to 1950s till 1973. And during that period of time, we are the ones who were responsible for causing over 2 million Vietnamese civilians to die, a legacy of Agent Orange causing birth defects, despoiling their environment, and causing the death of 58,000 Americans, plus over 400,000 injured. And yet they'll use Vietnam with no details of the fact that we threw everything humanly possible against people who really had, they had no Navy, they had no Air Force, they had no mechanized army. They had no tanks. They had no satellites. They had no major intelligence services. They had no major interrogation centers. It's like fighting someone from the Stone Ages. 
yet they won, because we could not defeat them. And it wasn't because we didn't have enough political will. We had exhausted everything. We just don't learn any lessons. One of the things we did during the Vietnam War was called the Phoenix Program, and Kevin Ryan uh, wrote something I think is interesting. I'm going to quote it. It's called A Review of the Phoenix Program. Because what we did in Vietnam, we did in Laos, we did in Cambodia, we did in Thailand, and we did in uh, Afghanistan, and we certainly have done it in Iraq. Quote, Douglas Valentine's The Phoenix Program is vital for understanding the history of terrorism and its role in political warfare. Few other historical accounts provide as much detail on how the U.S. government and the CIA began to use programs of counterterrorism to implement political policy through secretive, cold-blooded actions. Understanding such history is critical to making sense of what is happening in our world today. Although implemented as a means of countering terrorism, Valentine shows how the Phoenix Program was in practice a CIA-controlled campaign of terror in Vietnam. Hidden behind terms like pacification and neutralization, Phoenix implemented a program of terror and psychological warfare against the civilian population. Under the guise of counterterrorism, tens of thousands of civilians were kidnapped, tortured, and murdered. Valentine explains how the purpose of Phoenix was to terrorize the people into submission, not only causing them to fear any possible association with the enemy, but also as a means of crushing dissent. Unfortunately for many Vietnamese peasants, they were caught in a world in which they were terrorized by both sides in the long-lasting conflict. Using psychological warfare techniques, Phoenix promised to protect the people from terrorism by simultaneously terrorizing them. The book describes the history of the program well. Phoenix and the precursor, ISEC, I-C-E-X, aligned the CA-supported provincial reconnaissance units, the PRUs, with police and paramilitary programs to create a system for capturing or killing suspects in targeted ways. Once captured and brought in for ter- interrogation, the suspect was as good as dead. The growing fear of this program led to further abuses, including false accusations and payoffs. The contractor, Pacific Architects and Engineers, built interrogation centers in every province and doubled as an employment front for other CIA operatives. The U.S. Army's participation in Phoenix led to the military purposely targeting civilians. In 1968, Defense Secretary Clark Clifford called the Phoenix program to be, quote, pursued more vigorously. In March of that year, 504 men, women, and children were killed in May Lai. Although it was covered up, Valentine argued that May Lai was a product of Phoenix under CIA control. Many of the characters in Valentine's book went on to play infamous roles in other scandals. Clark Clifford, for example, went on to lead the notorious Bank of Credit and Commerce International, the BCCI, discovered to be a CIA-controlled terrorist network. Clayton McManaway, hired by William Colby as a Phoenix program manager, later became a principal advisor in the ransacking of Iraq under L. Paul Bremer in 2003. Most remarkable control of Phoenix was transferred to Ted Shackley in 1969. Shackley would become the leader of the CIA within the CIA and was implicated in events like the Iran-Contra crimes. These facts demonstrate that once something like Phoenix is created and allowed to flourish, the philosophy machinery behind it does not go away. Yeah. And take a look today at how many of these private contractors in the intelligence, in the spying business, there are thousands of them, 
And once they're created, they don't go away. And none of them are of value to us. Yet we pay all this and say nothing and do nothing. We have multiple type of Phoenix program today. It's called the National Homeland Security. And we are all being spied upon. We have militarized the police. And we're wondering, gee whiz, why aren't we doing anything about it? I'm Gary Nall. We're out of time. I want to thank you all for listening, and I look forward to sharing more tomorrow. Have a nice day.